Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of WN Movie Talk Podcast. My name is Trev. Uh, today's episode, we are going to be discussing the 1985 film Cocoon. So, a sort of a science fiction fantasy movie from the 80s. I don't know if you can remember it. It's the one with all the old old guys and gals who uh, find a pool of eternal youth. But, so, it's been a little while since I've had an episode out. I do want to still do this. I want to keep talking about films. I just haven't had time at the moment. Uh, but I pulled my back at the weekend and I ended up spending a day in bed on the Sunday. Uh, what better to do? them watch films so yeah i i don't know why but i have been fancying to watch cocoon for quite a while so cocoon was the winner of two academy awards in 1986 best supporting actor from for don ameshi and best special effects by ilm industrial light and magic cocoon stars don ameshi wilford brimley hume cronin Brian Dennehy, Jack Guilford, Steve Gutenberg, Maureen Stapleton, Jessica Tandy, Gwen Verdon, Herta Ware, and Tanhi Welch. Uh, it's produced by Lily Finney Zanuck and her husband Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown. Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown, you may know as being the uh, producers for one of my favourite films, Jaws. And the film is directed by None other than Richie from Happy Days, Ron Howard. I think it was like his fourth or fifth film at the time. Uh, Splash had just come out, was his previous film, starring Tom Hanks, and that had been a huge commercial success. But anyway, I'll discuss Cocoon in a little while, the movie, the review. I will review it. But first of all, I'm going to talk about the film in the 80s, how this film sort of ticked all the boxes for me. I mean, the cover is the words cocoon and then you see a harbour a silhouette and a boy and his granddad on the harbour and then like the white cocoony light coming out of the sea so to me as a child that poster would have said jaws would have said close encounters of the third kind both of which was massive to me and to many others at that time you know they wasn't even 10 years old at the time those films so they would have still been very fresh Many sort of youngsters, my sort of age, in my generation, absolutely loved Jaws and Close Encounters and the Spielberg era. So, I mean, I still look back. This is why I kept wanting to watch Cocoon, because I look back at these films fondly. Sometimes they stand up and sometimes they don't stand up. So I'll let you know in a minute, you know, whether it has stood the test of time. But first of all, we will uh, have a look at the, the cover. As I said, I've described the cover for you and it says on the top, the slogan is, uh, it is everything you've dreamed of. It is nothing you expect. So don't really sell it. Uh, Beyond the innocence of youth, the back cover says, and the wisdom of age lies the wonder of Cocoon. A group of delightful and very human people meet up with some very bizarre and not so human beings who are visitors from a distant galaxy. They have come to Earth on a rescue mission to retrieve a secret which has laid hidden on the ocean floor for thousands of years. They share a more wondrous adventure of love and friendship than they could have ever imagined. Yeah, as I said, you know, big star lineup in here. Many of them old Hollywood sort of A-listers from days are gone so they're all getting on in their age so when a project like this came up where so many of them can work together they you know 
they jumped at the chance. Donna Meshi, Hume Cronin, Jessica Tandy, Gwen Verdon, very much stars of their day. But you know how it goes with Hollywood. You don't always get sort of the repeat custom as you get older. You're called upon less and less, especially for leading roles. You might play the grandfather supporting role in this or that. But this very much centralised on the elderly folk in a residential home as the main cast. The only person actually who wasn't a pensioner is the lead of the old guys, played by Wilford Brimley. Now, Wilford Brimley, during filming, was 49 when this filming began. He actually celebrated his 50th birthday during filming, but he was playing someone in their mid-70s, which, you know, must have been a bizarre role because his wife probably was old enough to be his mum. And, um, yeah, the scene where he sort of... Goes in the shower with her. <laughs> I bet he was rubbing his hands. I mean, the only thing I say, you know, he was 49. Jesus, that's only five years older than me. And I don't look any older than 28. So I couldn't, I couldn't have done that. Bizarre. Um, actors like uh, Donna Meshi and Hume Cronin, Jessica Tandy. You'd see them again in the 80s. Uh, Donna Meshi... He was in Trading Places as Mortimer Duke. Uh, But before that, he hadn't really done a great deal since the 70s. So Cocoon really did help to launch his career or relaunch his career. Because after that, he'd done uh, Harry and the Hendersons. He came back as Mortimer Duke in Coming to America. Just as a a little bit of a cameo, I think. Cocoon the Return. uh, Films like Oscar. And then he'd done some programmes like the uh, the Golden Girls and shit like that as well. In Hume Cronin, who is the real-life partner of Jessica Tandy. So they play husband and wife in this film as well. And uh, again, he'd sort of been a little bit more active in different films. He was in The Honky Tonk Freeway, The World According to Garp. He was in Brewster's Millions. And then he was in Cocoon. And then batteries not included, cocoon return. So he he was constantly sort of working, but cocoon obviously done a lot for their their careers. Whereas Jessica Tandy, she would go on to have a really good career post cocoon, even though she'd sort of still been acted again. She was in the world according to Garp, a film called Best Friends. I don't know what sort of what roles these were, but she was in cocoon. The Batteries Not Included, The House on Carroll Street, The Cocoon Return, and then she was in Driving Miss Daisy. And she's in Fried Green Tomatoes. So she was in quite a lot of films after that. She had a really good career as well, Jessica Tandy. I mean, I love Batteries Not Included. Um, probably more than Cocoon. I always did when I was younger, certainly. And then you also have a uh, younger cast in here, such as... Steve Gutenberg. So Steve Gutenberg, he's, you know, had a successful sort of time in the 80s. He was he was on his rise at this point, I think. But he was doing well with films like um, the Police Academy films. He was in those films. They was doing really well for him. Short Circuit would be quite a good hit. And Free Men and a Baby and Free Men and a Little Lady would also sort of happen for him in the 80s originally. But it was between him and... Um, Nicholas Cage to play the role Jack Bonner. So basically the Jack Bonner, he, he, 
Steve Gutenberg's character. Steve Gutenberg just pipped uh, Nicolas Cage to the role. It would have been a very different sort of character having had Nicolas Cage play. So the plot is that 10,000 years ago, this is thanks to Wikipedia, uh, peaceful aliens from the planet Antaria set up an outpost on Earth, on Atlantis. When Atlantis sank, 20 aliens were left behind, kept alive in huge rock-like cocoons at the bottom of the ocean. A group of Antarians have returned to collect them, disguising themselves as humans. They rent a house with a swimming pool, charge the water with a life force to give the cocoons energy to survive the trip home. However, next door to the house is a, a retirement home, and three of its residents, Wilfred Brimley as Ben, Hume Cronin as Joe, and Donna Meshi as Arthur, they have been taken to trespassing into this house, which was abandoned, and using the swimming pool. However, when they decide to keep using the swimming pool, even though there's these cocoons in it, they don't realise about the life force. But they start to, obviously, it makes them feel great. They're rejuvenated. It gets rid of their ailments. They don't no longer get old. And uh, that is where the story sort of kicks off. Now, I said that, you know, this this film comes in the middle of a Spielberg era. Um, and the opening shot it begins with the boy, David, looking through his telescope. And there's this sort of tender, optimistic score playing over the footage. Very John Williams-esque. It's, it's James Horner that does the soundtrack. And then, so he's looking through the telescope. And then I think the camera goes up to the sky and it sort of builds. And then the word cocoon comes up to like a sort of a fanfare, like a burst of fanfare. Cocoon! Turn! But it's very similar to how the credits roll in Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's a sort of a build-up and then the title and then that's it. There's no opening credit sequence other than that. So Zanuck Brown, obviously, they're massive producers. They've got a lot of clout since Jaws and they're probably after some of that 80s Spielberg style. Now, originally Robert Zemeckis was on board to direct this film. Um, he'd had two films already released. I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is about fans in of the Beatles, sort of going mental to try and book, to try and get to see the Beatles. And then Used Cars with Kurt Russell, which is a comedy. Both of these films have flopped, so weren't that successful. Spielberg had backed him both times and uh, gave him the opportunity to make these films, and they both flopped. Uh so I think Spielberg had offered him another film and Zemeckis said, no, I've got to do this on my own this time. So he went and chose a film called Romance in the Stone to make as his third film. Because obviously in Hollywood, if you have three strikes, you are out. So Robert Zemeckis needed Romance in the Stone to become a hit, else he was not going to get another chance to make a film. So Fox had him online once Romance in the Stone was out to direct Cocoon. But as Romance in the Stone was being made, he Zemeckis and Fox, 20th Century Fox, who produced both movies, they weren't seeing eye to eye. And when Zemeckis gave his first cut of Romance in the Stone, it wasn't as good as he'd hoped. And the Fox executives just thought it was awful and... They basically sacked him from Cocoon there and then and then turned to Ron Howard, who, as we said earlier, has just had a great hit, smash hit with uh, Splash. So this would put Ron Howard on a track to become 
the Ron Howard we know today. So, yeah, Romance in the Stone, actually, anyway, it came out after all that and became a massive hit. And it did sort of launch Robert Zemeckis' career and gave him the opportunity to obviously, instead of doing this, create Back to the Future. So that's what he went on to create. And the rest is history. Now, many of the couples in this film, you have uh, Bernie and Rose, who is Jack Guilford and Herta Ware. Now, Bernie, I think, is my favourite character in this film. He's he's a bit cowardly. They all take the piss out of him, call him a bit of a coward because he won't go in the pool. He won't sort of put himself out there to get in any trouble. Um, but his character is so heartfelt and he's devoted to his wife, Rose, who is beginning to struggle with dementia, which... You know, a few years later, in Battery's not included, Jessica Tandy will have a similar character, which they're both heartfelt ca- characterizations um, and heartfelt sort of tender viewings of dementia. But they're both sort of almost tongue in cheek how they're played, almost played for laughs, you know, and much more recent sort of accounts of dementia in movies is very much more harrowing. But back then it was a, a lighter hearted sort of accounting i mean batteries are not included goes into a bit more depth about the dementia but it certainly does you know it plays it light but it does also get into the mood you know get into the uh, hit you there you know uh, the way hume cronin interacts with jessica tandy in that but anyway that's batteries not included not talking about that uh, even though I, I sort of will because there's similarities between this and batteries not included not only is there like central elderly characters and uh, themes of aging and nostalgia uh, and also you know aliens coming down from space to help these guys out but also there's easy jazz music that plays in cocoon also it sounds like almost the same tune i'm not sure if it is the same tunes as in batteries not included but certainly has that same sort of feel now, the story as well for me, there's very many similarities between Cocoon and Spielberg's offering to the failed horror anthology Twilight Zone, the movie, where Spielberg's segment in that, he has a lot of elderly pe- residents in a nursing home who drink this elixir of life and they become children again. So similar theme, but it wasn't really done as well. I mean, this kind of family event film, you know, it was... There was lots of them in the 80s, films that young and old could watch and enjoy. And Cocoon sort of bridged the gap from the elderly all the way down to the youngsters. Nowadays, you don't get so much of this sort of film. I do feel like I do get nostalgic over old films, but not to the point where I want them constantly remade and reinvented and old plot lines reused. And it, it just doesn't work. Like, you know, how many times they can make ghostbusters without it ever being as good as ghostbusters is incredible um but they go oh, look you know it's got the stape off marshmallow man and slimer's back so those in the first one they're not getting any better they're only getting thinner the more you use them anyway so yeah cocoon was uh, came out at peak time for this type of movie um going back to the couples jessica tandy and hume cronin they play joe and alma now they're Like I said, they were a real-life married couple. 40 years married in real life. Um, So they do a lot of work together, often playing husband and wife in later years. Now, I like these characters because Hume Cronin, he's a bit of a ladies' man, and he he sort of gets tripped up. You see, as he gets younger, he's getting more confident. 
And uh, as you meet Joe, Hume Cronin, he's got leukemia, we learn. And it's it's not going very well. And his wife is devoted to him and they're enjoying spending their days together. But as the elixir of life begins to kick in for him and he's sort of going out and about, he begins to become this ladies' man that he used to be in the past. And uh, it's a good sort of observation of character that not everything is perfect for these guys, you know. There is a flip side to their them getting better. Uh, ben, played by Wilfred, Wilfred Brimley, as I mentioned, and his wife Maureen. He was, as I said, he was just turned 50 at the time of filming. Um, but they're very much the central couple in this. It's The intro is through, you meet his grandson first. Uh, his grandson doesn't actually have a very big role in this film. Um, not as much as I remembered he did, but you very much sort of follow the story through his eyes. And he's he's almost the sensible one of the lot. But it's great to see Donna Meshi, uh, Wilfred Brimley and Hume Cronin as this trio, mischievous trio, breaking into next door. And it's like, they've got nothing else to do. They're like, you know, like we were in the summer holidays. We just, well, let's go and do some mischief. <laughs> Where can we go? We used to have an outdoor swimming pool in our local school. We used to jump over the wall at that, in that, go and climb around in that when we was younger. So why wouldn't they do the same? So, so whilst they're doing this anyway, Steve Gutenberg, his plot, he sort of meets up with Brian Dennehy, who is the alien known as Walter. Good alien name. So Walter and Tanhy Welch plays Kitty. And then there's two other aliens with them who we never really, I don't think they even speak. They're just there. One of them's got a good beard and they're both handsome, dashing young men. But Tanhy Welch is sort of the sex symbol in this film, and she's the love interest for Steve Gutenberg. So the Antarians come down to Earth, and they see Steve Gutenberg in his boat, and he's not a very good captain of his boat. And I think as we meet him, he's dealing with some disgruntled customers who refuse to pay him or something. And then as they walk off, Walter walks on and says, yes, we'd like to take her out on your boat for 27 days or however long it is. But this poses a question to me because Steve Gutenberg, you know, is out on a boat, fair enough. These guys have just travelled from one end of the universe to the other. Do you not think that they'd have sort of equipment that they could go into the water with? doesn't make sense to me do you know what i mean it's like surely they could create some technology that can go down capture these pods probably without even getting out they can beam the boat up at the end so how can they not you know it just doesn't make that bit of it doesn't make sense to me but i'm, I'm picking holes to be honest um the, the scene i always remember from this is gutenberg spying through the hole as he's watching uh, kitty undress um she takes off her clothes and she takes off her skin and she's this like glowing white floaty alien. Um, I mean, it is the first reveal of the aliens, which is probably why it's so memorable for me. And the aliens, you know, they float and glow like the, the, the ghost of Christmas past. But they look very similar to the sort of the ETs in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So they're like the grey alien design, but with a more friendly face. As with all Ron Howard's films, his brother Clint Howard gets a, a minor role. In this one, he plays one of the staff at the care home. 
Now, Clint Howard, he's a funny looking guy, isn't he? And I rewatched all the original Star Trek films, uh, Star Trek episodes back along. Not all of them. I was, I've got through them. And I think it was in the very first series. There's this episode where this hideous looking kid, little baby, bald headed, freaky looking baby with weird teeth and googly eyes uh, called Balak the Trippy. And I instantly watched it and was like, that's Clint Howard. And I googled it. And of course it was, and it famously too, if you know Star Trek, uh, you probably know the character and know that it's Clint Howard. But I could recognise him. He hasn't changed. He's always been one of the most strangest looking men that you'll ever see. But anyway, yeah, brother Ron always takes care of his brother. Uh, his dad as well, actually, Rance Howard. He turns up as a police officer in the end, Chase trying to well, I say police officer he's sort of a plainclothes detective sort of thing called in at the end to try and search for the eloping old people so kitty the alien and jack they have began to sort of develop this relationship and then she sort of you know wants to get it on with him but she can't because she's not human they can't make love so she takes him to a swimming pool and she shows him how they make love on antarian by projecting her life force into the sky and then sending it into Steve Gutenberg where he's he has this amazing orgasm and obviously it brings them much closer together now these you know it was ILM and they did win the award for the effects but the effects aren't as startling as some of the effects from the 80s I suppose this is the mid 80s so you know ILM are establishing themselves as really as like the leading effects department but when you look back now some of the effects do tend to be a little bit on the sort of uh on the dodgy side the creatures are actually created by um rick baker you know who done the american wealth in london the effects and the zombies and michael jackson's thriller and stuff like that he's leading in his sort of field of makeup and then the concept art was done by None other than uh, Ralph McQuarrie, who also done the concept art for Star Wars. So you can see that Fox has their fingers in with a lot of Spielberg's and Lucas's phone book, you know, to use a lot of their contacts. Now, Donna Messier, as we said as well, he won the, the award for this. Now, I don't know if that's just an award given to him because he should have won awards previously, you know, for his work done in previous films. But to me, there was nothing outstanding in his performance here. The scene where he break dances is absolutely cringy. And you can tell when it's close up and he's doing it, it's so awful. It's like watching your granddad dancing at a wedding. And then it cuts back to a shot of someone who's clearly not Donna Meshi, dressed up as an older guy doing all this break dancing. It's such a uh, it's such a cringy scene. I mean, it is completely the uh, the 80s. So there is these two sort of 80s montages. One is the guys going out on the town. That's where we see Don Ameshi doing his break dancing. The other montage is earlier in the film and it's the guys sort of in the pool once they're in there with the cocoons and they're doing all these somersaults and diving and you know 80s loved the montage and they loved to have that electro rock pop sort of sound to them so it's real cheesy 80s moments it was great i loved it um 
Yes, but I was saying, yeah, Donna Meshi won the Oscar and I don't think he was that deserving of it. For me, again, Jack Guilford as Bernie, he just has so many layers to his character. He's not cantankerous, but I don't know. It's, his character is just really well played by him and he gets some real emotional scenes. He gets some funny scenes. At no, no point does it ever feel staged or hammy, whereas to me, Donna Meshi felt, all of those things in this film. He's not a patch on the performance by Jack Guilford. So to me, I think Jack Guilford, he deserved that award. And I think it's a shame he didn't, didn't get it, to be honest. Once the three guys and they introduce their wives to the swimming pool as well. And they all start to feel younger. And some of the other, uh, I call them inmates, residents of the residential home, they start to get a feeling that something's not quite right and they see the women climbing a tree and then they're all like pushing what's going on what haven't you told us by this point the three main guys have met with the aliens and although they've been caught trespassing the aliens have basically said look you're free to use it just don't touch cocoons and whatever you do don't tell anyone so when the other elderly people sort of crack onto it the idea of what's going on then they basically just rush out of the gates and they go in and they start just jumping in the pool and they feel younger but it's it's a scene that always it, it upset me as a child to see these people going so manic so quickly and they're literally picking up these cocoons and they're smashing this cocoon on the side and I used to think old people wouldn't act like that that doesn't realistic but you know elderly people are just as sort of prone to making mistakes as us i remember pulling up at a beach sat eating fish and chips looking in my car overlooking the beach and there was an old couple next to me and they looked like a lovely old couple and i sort of waved to them and they waved to me and they're in their car eating fish and chips as well when they finished they just emptied all of their rubbish out the window and drove off and i was just absolutely mortified that these people had done this and this is exactly how i feel when especially when I was a kid watching this scene I was like horrified that old people would act like this and watching it now you know with that memory I have of the old people sort of just dis have no regard for nature and just throwing fish and chips uh, anyone can you know be a bastard not just youngsters um but yeah that scene where they they're breaking up the thing uh it's absolutely heartbreaking and Obviously, Brian Dennehy comes in and it goes a bit crazy, shouts at all to get out. And then they, they try to rescue this pod and one of the aliens is in there and, and, and dies. Um, so it always makes me feel, would you act like that if you had that? But it's that you'd like to think you'll act with a bit more respect. So, the you know, at this point, the elderly have ruined it for everyone. Hume Cronin and Wilfred Brimley, Donna Meshi. They feel awful that this has happened. Uh, Wilford Brimley, actually, his character, Ben, as I say, he's, he's the central character. He turns up later on and he apologises to Brian Dennehy. Um, but Brian Dennehy, his character, you know, he's a big guy, but he's friendly in this, you know. But he's got that presence that when you first realise they're aliens, he's so sort of overpowering in size to Steve Gutenberg, and Steve Gutenberg's running around a boat. I didn't see anything. I don't want to go. I don't know. I just want to go. And I think uh, Denna Hayes, a great casting for this role. He's got these sort of real pleasant eyes, but you could watch him in a film like this and 
you're completely online with him being the good guy. And then you can watch him into Catch a Killer, where he plays John Wayne Gacy. And he plays him so well. He is an actor with some great depth, great range. Um, almost following that scene where they've the, the, the alien passes away and Brian Dennehy's character sort of cries, sheds a tear, which he's never done before because it's, it's Earth. Um, then there's a scene, another scene with Bernie and his wife. Again, he steals the show for me, Jack Guilford, in this as Bernie. And he goes to get his wife some medication. She's fallen asleep. And when he comes back, she's passed away. You see him then pick her up. He's carrying her over to the pool. He's in the pool and he's trying to get her to come back to life. And it's such a heartfelt and heart-moving scene. And it's played with real conviction. And then Brian Dennehy comes in. And I'm sorry, it's not enough life force to protect her. It's too late, you know. And he was sort of always made up, Bernie, had always made up his mind that he didn't want a part of this. They can't cheat nature. They've just got to get old gracefully. And he made this decision and now he's lost his wife and he's there. It's too little, too late. But it goes, you know, it, it is good that some people do question, is it right, is it wrong? Because at the end of this film, I think when the grandparents leave and basically they all get to go, but the whole of the old people's home abandons their, their residential home, gets on Steve Gutenberg's boat and they're all riding out to sea, being chased by the FBI and the police or whatever to be taken up by the aliens to go and live on this planet millions of miles away where they're never going to get old, they're never going to get sick and they're never going to die. But you're not going to have any of your family there. That's what I always think. It's it's very similar to the ending of Close Encounters of the Third Kind where Roy Neary goes up into space. He, he leaves his family, abandons his family. It's a very selfish sort of decision. Now, I thought in this, I pictured at the end that the main guy, Ben Wilford Brimley, wouldn't make that decision and he'd stay with his grandson because it's him and his relation, the relationship between him and his grandson the whole way through is sort of their through line. But he does, he just leaves him and grandson's mother as well is their own daughter and they're just going to abandon her which i think it's yeah is it is a selfish self-centered way of looking at things would people really be that sort of adverse to dying and i think on the set there is discussion between all the old guys if they was given this opportunity would they wouldn't they some of them said they would some of them said they wouldn't um but now yeah we're talking we're getting into the ending so in the end, basically, they agree to help save the rest of the pods or whatever. I can't remember that how quite they agree. Oh, that's it. When when Ben turns up to uh, apologise to Walter, Walter then explains that the, they ha the, the cocoons aren't going to survive the trip back, but they will survive if they're put back in the sea. So that's what the, Ben says. Well, we'll help you get the cocoons back in the sea. But... And then they come up with a deal where if they help him, then they can all return. All the old people can return to their planet and live forever and ever. Amen. Um, so it's a bit of a strange ending, this as well. And it's one of those typical 80s endings. It's funny. It's tongue in cheek. It's almost exciting. You've got the boat chase uh, all the old people on there. The boy jumps across to them and goes with them 
the grandparents have already told the boy that they're going to be going away forever. Won't see him again. So it's sort of that scene as well where he's fishing with his grandson. He explains to him that he won't be coming back. It's almost like your grandparents just telling a grandchild how they're not going to be around forever. You know, so it's almost dealing with death and grief. But they all basically go out. The aliens come down. It's quite an impressive scene. The mothership coming through. It's built a bit on E.T., a bit on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Nothing. It's no new technology at this point. We've seen it a couple of times before, but uh, it's still quite an impressive scene. Then the mist comes in. The FBI can't see what's going on. The beam of light comes down, takes all the aliens, take all the old folk, leaves Steve Gutenberg, um, and then it cuts. It's the end of the film, and then it cuts to a scene, and it's the funeral scene. All these old people died tragically out at sea um lost at sea but if that was a, would have been the case surely at this point jack would have been arrested the minute he got back into land he would have been arrested for the manslaughter of all these lives for kidnapping all these old people and then losing them to sea out at sea he would have had to face up to that you know no one would get away with that. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, yeah, we've got this far. We just believe what we see sort of ending. But it does make me think, yeah, someone would have had to have been held accountable for that. Anyway, Cocoon, that was it. It was a hit in the 80s. Did it hold up? Was I, did I enjoy it this time around? I did actually, I did still enjoy it. To be honest, it choked me up. In a couple of places. I don't know if it's just because, you know, now we're getting to a point where our parents are getting to that sort of age. Um, and there's a few moments in there that sort of rang home and sort of choked me, like I say. Also, I get a bit choky when I, I get nostalgic. I used to love our childhood and growing up and watching these films in real wonder. And films just don't have that anymore. All these Marvel films and things. There's not many films I could watch with my kids and think that's a magic film, you know. But back then it was it was different. So as I said, the film was successful. All in all, it it grossed eighty five million dollars worldwide. Uh, it was the fifth highest grossing film in nineteen eighty five after Back to the Future, Beverly Hills Cop, Rambo Two, and Rocky Four. And then it spawned a sequel, Cocoon the Return, in 1988, which I also watched last night, which I will discuss briefly here. Everyone returned, all the cast returned for the sequel. Um, Brian Dennehy, he does return, but only for a brief cameo at the very, very end of the film. But uh, the director, he didn't return. Ron Howard decided he was going to make Willow instead this time. So that was his next film. Steve Gutenberg still on his boat. He's got a glass bottom boat now. And he, he, we meet him. He's first playing the Jaws theme on his Casio keyboard. The film actually opens up with Bernie again. My favourite. Um, Jack Guilford. And he's a bit depressed. He's in this old people's home. He hasn't really got any friends. He's about to hang himself. He's trying to hang himself. And then it goes wrong. Just as all the friends turn up. So it opens up, he's, he's sort of making rugs in the home. They mention rugs a lot through Cocoon Return. I don't quite know why, but he's, he's making rugs in the old people's home. And then you see him chatting to the grave of his wife, Rose. And he's saying, I used to hold the garment district in the palm of my hand. And now 
and making rugs at an old people's home. Then we also meet David, the grandson, doing his homework. And he receives a transmission from his grandfather coming through the telly. Tell your mother we're coming home. Uh, and then it's basically it. Yeah, basically the sequel. It's just a rehash of the first one. Um, Ron Howard, as I said, isn't there. Uh, David Pietra, a director who found critical commercial success as a director in the 60s and 70s. He takes the helm. It's it's basically a director for a higher job. He's done a good job. Howard done a good job in the first one. Neither of them are Spielberg, but they're good, solid directors, know how to make a film, keep things moving. So the, basically the plot of Cocoon, The Return, is that these aliens come back to rescue now the last of the cocoons. But as they get there, the Oceanographic Institute arrive and they steal one of the cocoons and they take it back to their lab. And back at the lab, we meet Courtney Cox. She's a scientist there. And she discovers when they put it through an MRI scan that there is a life force in it. And you see it's like curled up in the fetal position and moving. I think it scratches its nose or something. So it's... It's very much a rehash of the first one. There are some good scenes in it. There are some memorable moments in there. I think Jessica Tandy's character at this point, I think she's done, but she's not included by now. And she stole the show in that film. So I think she gets a lot more sort of screen time in this film. Her role in the first one was very much the shadow of Hume Cronin. We're following him rather than her. And she'd just turn up as the wife in the background sort of thing. Whereas this time we get to see her and her love for children. And we have her own story that's taking place. Uh, it's actually through Jessica Tandy that we sort of get a little glimpse at what life was like for these old age pensioners back on back on this strange planet. And she says that the sky was gold, there are three pale moons and we can all float. And we floated into a massive silver floating city. So you get a little bit of an insight into what the planet is. Um, there's some more 80s montages here, but this time they've decided not to use the 80s pop rock and as they had for the original montage scenes. And they've gone for that cool sort of classic jazz sound, much like Batchy's Not Included, which... Uh, and the, and the the montage scene starts with the, the old guys playing base basketball, which they're losing at first, and then they just all of a sudden make a comeback and whoop all these younger lads. And then that same montage flows into a scene with all the women getting makeovers, and they're dressing up and getting made to seem younger with all this beautiful makeup and these lovely dresses. So they don't behave like children so much. They just have to dress down. So it's I thought that was quite a sexist statement. Now, if you was to make a film like that, you'd have to have them sort of echoing what the men are doing and doing something that women would do, you know. But back then, it's like, oh, how can we make these women younger? Makeup and dresses. Um, but during this sequence, both Joe, Hume Cronin, and Donna Resch's partner, Beth. I can't remember the actress. Is she Gwen Verdon? I think she's Gwen Verdon. Um, they both sort of begin to... You can see that things aren't right. They're beginning to feel these ailments returning. So Joe is like holding himself. He's in pain. And Beth, she uh, she collapses. And they all rush to the hospital. Donna Meshi tells Hume Cronin, he's so worried about her, that he says he would trade places with her in a heartbeat. Which Hume Cronin sort of thinks, come on, don't say things like that. Um, 
it turns out that Beth, you know, is a pensioner and she is pregnant. Well, she's never going to have the baby on Earth. So once they go back in two or three days time, she'll be fine. But at the moment, you know, they've got to face these issues on Earth. Hume Cronin as well. He goes back to the doctors and is told that his leukemia started again and they want to put him into chemotherapy. But he thinks, oh, I'm going back in two or three days. But then the scene that catches you out in this film is where uh, Jessica Tandy, she's taken a job just in the meantime. She's working with these children. She loves the children. It's great to see her interacting with these children when she's reading them the story, telling them the story about where they've been on the you know, their, their adventure to the stars and what have you. The joy on her face is so great and heartfelt. Uh, but as the story evolves, she's playing with these children and one of the children kick a ball out onto the road and runs out to get it and she goes to rescue the boy and she's hit by a car and she's knocked into a coma. And at this point, Hume Cronin goes to visit her in the hospital and he knows that he's going to die here and he saves Jessica Tandy with all of his life force and then he dies there and then. Uh, so it's a real sad scene and it, it, it completely mirrors what Donna Meshi had said previously in the hospital. So the grandfather and grandson scenes with Ben and David again, they just feel a little bit out of place here. They're just sort of basically filler. I think the whole film feels a lot like filler. The plot is we come to rest of the aliens and we've got to rescue one now out of the oceanographic institute where they're going to be tested on him but the stories don't really propel the film if you know what i mean and this the scenes between the grandfather and the grandson are just a lot of filler the grandson is not very good at baseball and he ben's giving him a chance to sort of give lots of life affirming speeches it all seems a bit corny uh Steve Gutenberg again and Kitty the alien they start to sort of spark up their relationship again Kitty says oh would you like us to do that again Steve Gutenberg says, yeah but we can't just do it we need to romance first so he takes her to a restaurant and then she sort of has a reaction to the food and it makes her all sort of horny and it's a scene that I compare to the Ghostbusters to Ghostbusters and the diner scene from when Harry met Sally, Kitty decides there and then in this restaurant she's going to share her life force with Steve Gutenberg and she sort of begins to glow and float and then her life force comes out and is shooting all around this restaurant and he's ducking it, trying not to get it and it's hitting random customers. Uh, but then she's like, oh, I feel bad about this afterwards. And he's like, oh, I just don't want to become this old guy who ends up on his own. So she's like, oh, I've got a present for you. And she touches his head and she projects the future to him. Now, this is such a corny scene. It's so lame. Um, and it shows you this dreamy future of Steve Gutenberg, where it's, it's awful. It's filmed with this like misty, romantic haze. And you see this big, big house. So, and Steve Gutenberg comes out with all his children and he's dressed how is he dressed he's sort of dressed like some old dandy and he's got his sailor's hat on and a corn cob pipe and then his wife comes out dressed like jane austen and you you could see that it's uh courtney cox's character but not that they two have met at this point um but she's filmed sort of secretively so you can't quite see her you know it's all like mysterious shots all you can see is this 
heart-shaped love bite. It's so corny. A love bite in the shape of her heart behind her ear. And this is shown to Steve Gutenberg. And then later on, yeah, he meets her at the very end and he's chatting away to her and then notices the, the thing. And he's like, what? Oh, it's real. It's true. Shit. Absolute shit. Um, but yeah, the scientists who open up the cocoon as well, they're just cracking this thing open. You know, what do they think is going to happen? Surely they know that if they take this life form out of this protective cocoon, it's going to die. But they're doing it and they're just... They haven't got any, like, protective gear on. They're not wearing any masks. How do you know what's going to come out of that cocoon isn't going to be toxic? Absolutely ridiculous. And then Courtney Cox sort of lame comment to the alien, don't be afraid, you know, despite the fact that they've just clearly cut something open that they know nothing about and will more than likely die in our atmosphere. But they keep this alien anyway in captivity and Courtney Cox sort of befriends it. Um, anyway, the film goes on. Like I say, we've got all these different storylines going on. Bernie's character at the beginning, he's like, Bernie's character is going through this like new relationship. They've tried to set him up with this woman. And at first he doesn't want it because he, you know, he's got a wife, even though she's dead. And then the woman who he's interested in sort of convinces him as the story goes on that, you know, your your wife is dead, but you're not, you're alive. Uh, eventually we get up to the rescue scene at the end of the film and it doesn't really make a lot of sense where they break into the, the Oceanographic Institute doesn't sort of make a lot of sense. It feels very rushed without any real plan of how they're going to do it. They just sort of do, they go in, they dress as doctors, they dress as security guards, but... Um, you know, finally, they, they rescue this alien. They take it to the boat. They go to rescue all the other pods at last. Uh, and then it, it's like they sort of skimped on the effects. There's no grand reveal of the, the ship. There's no mystery. It just sort of turns up all of a sudden and goes, takes it. So at this point, you know, who's going back this time? You've got Ben and his wife, they decide this time round that they will stay. Like I say, I felt awful at the end that they're abandoning their family. And in this one, they sort of come to the same conclusion. So they're going to stay. Jessica Tandy, she's got this job now with the children. So she's going to stay. She's lost her husband. There's no point in her going. So it turns out it's only Don Meshi and his wife going up because they're going to have a baby which isn't going to survive on Earth. So it's it sort of undoes everything that the first film done. It's... It's a bit of a strange sequel. It wasn't as half as successful as its original. Um, but, you know, it's all right. It was, it was all right. It was the 80s, wasn't it? So there you go. Anyway, that was me talking about Cocoon and Cocoon the Return. So thank you ever so much for listening. If you are new to WN Movie Talk Podcast, formerly known as We Need to Talk About Movies Podcast, then please do have a look back at our other episodes. There's loads on there. We have a Facebook page as well, WM Movie Talk Podcast over at Facebook. So join us over there. You can like and comment and answer questions as we put them up and things like that. Or if you want to email us to suggest a film, then please write us at Podcast at gmail.com. Anyway, I've been Trev, and this has been WN Movie Talk Podcast. Chase!